Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We are in the final week of our opening series in the year of the Bible called Origins, and we've been looking at the first five books of the Bible, uh, plus one, uh, but the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. Uh, or the books of the law. And it's interesting that we call them the books of the law because that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to enter the zone that we call the Bible reading plan graveyard. We're going to look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, sort of from a 30,000-foot view, and look at the law of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law. Now, I I make that joke, but you laugh because you know it's true. Once you reach Leviticus, you're like, wait, what what is this? What is all of these names, and what is all of these instructions, and what about these, these sacrifices and these laws that don't seem to really relate to me anymore, don't seem to have any value, any bearing on my life in current day Western uh, culture. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. What we're going to do is really look at this idea of the law as our blueprint for life. That's what it would have been to the original audience here, the, the ancient Jewish people. It was their blueprint for life. And in a connected way, it is for us. We'll make some connections. Uh, We'll talk about why certain laws we don't really do anymore. We'll look at that before we're done for a few few minutes. As I said, in Genesis, I could have spent weeks and weeks and weeks just in Genesis. We did it in one day. Uh, I could do the same thing with the Old Testament law. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks dissecting different parts of the Old Testament law, look at the different sacrifices, the different feasts and festivals, uh, why, we, why they're there, what we do about them now. But we're going to try, to, again, a 30,000-foot view of the law in general. And what we're going to look at are three things. We're going to look at three, three aspects of the law. We're going to look at the purposes of the law, the impossibility of the law, and then the person of the law. That's what we're going to look at today. The purposes of the law, the impossibility of the law, and then finally the person of the law. So we'll start out here with the first one, the purposes of the Old Testament law. What is the purpose of that? And let's start out by looking at some of the law here. Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 and 18. And uh, this is sort of Moses recapping the law. So the end, of, the end of Exodus and then Leviticus and some of Numbers are the law. Deuteronomy is basically a really long sermon recap of Moses telling them, once again, just so you don't forget, before I die, uh, here's the law. And so this is Moses speaking to the people, Deuteronomy 26, verse 17. You have declared today, the people, that the Lord is your God, and you have promised to walk in his ways and to obey his decrees, commands, and regulations, and to do everything he tells you. Verse 18, the Lord has declared today that you are his people, his own special treasure, just as he promised, and that you must obey all his commands. Now go down to Deuteronomy 28, two chapters down, Deuteronomy 28, verse 9. Uh, similar thing here, says, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he swore he would do. 
There are two purposes, I believe, at least two, but two we're going to focus on, of the Old Testament law. The first of them we see here in Deuteronomy 26 and 28. The first purpose of the law is it gave Israel their identity. Okay? It gave them their shared values. It created a community. So Israel would ask, if you would ask them, who are you? that you might get a bunch of different answers apart from the law, right, being their identity. You might say, well, we're former slaves in Egypt. That's true, but is that who they really are? And they might say, well, we're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's true. That's their lineage, but is that who they are? That's where they came from, but is that who they are? So the first purpose of the law here is it gives them identity. It gives them a firm explanation of who they really are. Through the law, Israel learned how to function as a community with one another. Through the law, they learned how to live in harmony, how to thrive. And it also gave them their uniqueness as a community, as a people group. So there are some laws that when you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are some laws that are just basic laws, like don't murder, okay? That's a basic law that every civilization in the history of the world has had. But that doesn't make Israel unique, but some of the laws do. Some of the laws in the Old Testament law are very specific to them. I'll give you two examples. First is the dietary laws. That is very specific to Israel. It kept them separate. Now, there are lots, there are debates. Even, even rabbis within Judaism today will still debate this topic. Well, why do we have these laws, and why do we obey these food laws, these dietary laws? Is it just for health? Well, maybe, but I think that's a secondary part of it. So a lot of the debate comes back to this idea. God wanted his people as they're entering, which we'll start a new series next week for a few weeks, talking about how they, when they enter the promised land, the first uh, few years there, there's some growing pains to that. So God put these parameters in place for them to give them identity as they enter into foreign territory among foreign peoples to say, hey, this is how you're to still remain my people. So you, and it's, again, it's not just for dietary reasons. Part of the reason is a lot of food things in ancient cultures, even as, well, not the same as today, but there's, there's a lot of things too that besides just the food that you're eating. It's the activity around the food. So for instance, around fo big football games, there's going to be food. The point is not the food, is it? Unless you just don't care about sports like my wife, but that's not the point. The point is the game, the people watching the game, interacting in this activity, and the food is part of that part of that event. That's how food works, and even in ancient cultures. So it wasn't the food that was the issue necessarily. It was that with ancient cultures, they would sacrifice food to their gods and their idols in a form of worship. And God's like, I'm not going to have my people getting mixed up in that, so you're going to have to stay kind of away from those sorts of activities. Uh, and, and there were lots of other things that would go along that would break God's law involved with these food gatherings and parties that would not be okay. And so it's sort of to Keep, as Jesus says later on, he tells in his last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, don't take my people out of the world, but protect them from the evil one, right? It's the same idea in sort of an ancient culture idea. He knows that they're going to interact with people that are not like them, don't think like them, or believe like them, or worship like them, or even eat like them. And he does that on purpose to keep some sort of a safety barrier to keep this uniqueness for his people. Even today, if you're going to know if, if there's a practicing Orthodox Jew, because they're probably going to live in a community with one another, 
in certain cities and pockets in the country. New York City, they have a large Orthodox Jewish population. So they have food they can eat there. They can access. They can live within. They're, again, they're living in a larger community, right, in the city. But they're also living in their own community. Their kids are going to go to their own schools and learn their own values and follow their, even their own dietary laws. Even today, that is, that is the law for the Jewish people. Another part of the law would be the sacrifices that we read about, especially in Leviticus. You know, you have to bring this sort of sacrifice to cover this sin, and when you're going to do this type of offering, you've got to bring this animal and sacrifice it in a certain way, and there's all sorts, it's like a bloody, literally bloody mess is the Old Testament law. But again, this is specific worship for God's specific people. It's teaching them about forgiveness for sin on how God sees it. It helps them to have communion with God in a very specific way. So those two things specifically are big chunks of the law that make them unique. They make them their own people and God's own people. But there is a, what I want us to notice here about these two verses that we just read is it goes both ways. The law is also a promise. The law is not just do this, do this, do this, obey, obey, obey. It's God says, no, 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 it's a two-way street here. When you do these things, you are my people. And that comes with certain privileges. That comes with certain rights that he gives his people. He gives them his, his law as his people. And there's an if-then statement. If you keep my law, you will remain my people. So that's a pretty big deal that I don't, I don't want us to just look o- overlook and not think about. There is an if-then there. There is a promise to the law. There is a payoff to the law. And with this idea of community and identity, even our laws in our country sort of work to do the same thing. So there's a huge thing, it's called the Bill of Rights, that is very unique to America. It gives somewhat our identity. It's why we have a bit of a stubborn streak in us from the very founding of our country, because we're like, here's what's unique about the Bill of Rights. The first 10, uh, I was going to say commandments, but they're not amendments to the Constitution, is it protects us from the government. That is unique. 1770s and 80s, when they're putting this document together, there is no other nation on earth that has ever had that as part of their governing documents. So the government is going to protect me from itself. Yes, and thank God that we have that, right? So that's awesome. Now, other countries in the last 50 years or so have adopted a Bill of Rights, but we are unique in that we have identity in being founded with that as the crux. Like the first thing that we said is, We're not going to be what we came from. We're going to give the people freedom from the people governing them in some huge ways, some protections from them. So even today, our own law does a similar thing. We have a shared identity in some of our own law protection, even from our government. So that's the first purpose of the law is the identity that it gave to God's people, the uniqueness that it granted them. There's a second purpose of the law here, and it's this idea of guardrails, or as we're calling it, a blueprint for life. Let's look here. This is not in the law, but it's later on. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 is describing the law um, of God, and here's how it describes it. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 7, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The law gives guardrails or a blueprint for life. Now, it is true that human nature, we resist rules. We resist authority. It's human nature. 
right? Even small children, they, are just, they just know, resist authority. <laughs> they just know this. We are, it's ingrained in our human nature to resist that. But we need those guardrails in our lives. Let me give you an example of this. Because sometimes we think, okay, true freedom means no rules. True freedom means I can do anything I want, anytime I want, without any consequence. That would be true freedom. But I heard this example this week, and I had, to, I had to share it with you about why that's not true. So let me give you an example. Let's play a game, okay? I want you to make the first move in the game. You don't know what that means. You don't know what to do about that. You have no idea. What do you mean make the first move? What game are we playing? What's the point of the game? What's the object of the game? That's a life without rules. Is that freedom? No, it's confusion. It, it's like, uh, I don't know what to do. Is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? What does the first move mean, right? So instead, what if I say, okay, we're going to play a game of chess, I'll explain the rules to you. I'll explain the point. I'll show you the tutorial. You can read the rule book. Now, I want you to make the first move. Well, now you know what to do. Now, there are rules in place now, right? There's a rule book you've got to follow. There are certain first moves you cannot make now. So I've taken your freedom, right? Well, not really. We need those parameters in any situation to actually give us freedom to know what to do, how to do it, and why to do it. So these rules that God makes, these laws that he has, even the laws that we have, that we don't always like them, or as we even read Leviticus, we don't always understand them, but we know that they're there for a reason. They do ultimately give freedom. They give us workable parameters for life. Because think about ancient Israel for a second. They're flying blind. They, they're doing a brand new thing with a brand new God. They have no thing to go off of. They know kind of who they're not by looking around. They know, what, they know who they're not trying to emulate, but that doesn't mean a lot to them. So God has to give them his law to show them and tell them how to live, how to coexist, how to succeed in being his people. Because it wouldn't be fair if God just, if the law is just do everything right, period. That's the law. I'm not going to tell you what it is or how to do it. Just don't mess up or I'm going to punish you. Just don't do anything I don't like or I'm going to judge you. That wouldn't be fair of God to do if that was the entire law. Just don't, just don't do this and do that. But he explains what he wants. He expresses his desires. So it doesn't mean that we always like or agree with the rules, but we can't plead ignorance and we know that they're there for a reason. They're a blueprint for life. Another way to think of it is the law provides focus. It helps us to see things God's way. When, I, when I'm confused about a certain thing or I don't know what I should do, when I look at, really, Scripture overall is how, how we would view it today. When I look at the instructions of Scripture, uh, the words of Scripture, the stories and the people in Scripture, it's going to give me focus. It's going to help me to see things the way that God sees them, to see people the way that God sees them, to see decisions the way that God would see them, to see sin how God sees it. The reason that something we would feel is sinful is not just because necessarily we feel it, although God does give us a conscience, he does do that at the bare minimum, but that's why different people have these different feelings from one another. To one person, this activity might be wrong because of Scripture, and to the other person, they don't feel that same thing because they don't, they don't abide under the same law. So God gives us uh, this focus, and what it does is it will help us to avoid missteps more often because we, we have the rules posted on the wall, right? And it will help us to correct missteps quicker. 
and it'll help us to forgive others' missteps much easier. It's because it gives us these guardrails or this blueprint for life. So again, the two purposes of the Old Testament law, and again, I don't have time to get into how it's sort of, we sort of stretch uh, some of that. We, we'll get into it a little bit later, but it does do the same thing for us today, okay? And really overall, that's what Scripture is intended to do. So the, the law, again, gives identity to God's people, even us today, to some degree, and then it also gives us these guardrails or parameters for life. It's a blueprint for life. But then here's the problem with the law is there's an impossibility to the law. It's impossible. Let me, let me read uh, Leviticus 19, 1 and 2 to show you why. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The impossibility of the law is in this word, Holiness. Holiness appears to be the theme of the law. Holy is in Leviticus alone dozens of times, and it seems impossible. Be holy because God is holy. Be like God, this perfect, transcendent, supernatural being. Be like Him. That seems impossible. Even just think about the Ten Commandments, how hard those are to get right all the time without fail. Ten rules is enough to really flub us up. Ten rules is enough to trip us up over and over and over. But the Old Testament law is over 600 laws. There's either 613 or 614. There's some debate on on, on that. But that's, so now now we've gone from the 10 big ones that are on stone to like over 600 now that that's going to be impossible. And here's what happens over, over the years and years and years is that the leaders and teachers and rabbis, they would make rules about the rules, and laws about the laws. And so by the time Jesus comes around, that's why we have these Pharisees he's always calling out, because they and the people that have come from before them, now there are thousands of laws that they're placing on the people. They have extra books with extra laws, and we got to reference and cross-reference all. There's so many. It's impossible to keep the law. It's impossible to be holy. Let me give you one example. So one of the Ten Commandments is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's one rule. However, by the time of Jesus, there are dozens of rules under the heading of the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean to keep it holy? Well, we, we shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Okay, well, what's work? Right? That's what they're trying to fit. They're trying to work through all of these what-ifs and like section A, article B, you know. And so here's the deal. They have, well, okay, you can't work. That means you can't, if you walk too many steps, that's work. So you, you can walk this many steps on the Sabbath, but no more. Like, what if I'm going out for a jog and I'm stuck in the middle of town? What do I do? I've taken too many steps, okay? Uh, or they would say, well, you can't, you can't carry so much weight. If you try to lift too much weight, that's, too, that's work. So you're breaking the Sabbath. There's another one. It's, this one is actually in the Old Testament. There's one example of it where you're not supposed to make a fire in your home. So even today, if you go to Israel, and even there's some in New York, I believe, too, they're called Shabbat elevators. So they are specific elevators that on the Sabbath, on Saturday, are automatic. They will stop at every floor all day long. So if a practicing Jew, if he goes in there, she goes in there, and they press a button, they have started a fire. They've made an electrical connection. They have broken the Sabbath. So if you go to Israel on Saturday, on their Sabbath, on Shabbat, the elevators are all automatic. So they can go in. They're going to have to wait a while to get to the 40th floor of the penthouse, right? 
but they're not going to break the law in doing it because they're not going to start a fire by making an electrical connection with their finger on a button in an elevator. So they take this very seriously. So that's even, even today, this is part, they're obeying the law. But again, even just keeping 10 laws is impossible. Keeping 600 laws, impossible. Keeping thousands of laws, impossible, right? Holiness is not attainable. It is impossible. But what if we're viewing holiness incorrectly? What if in seeing holiness in that way, that's not really what is intended? Let's ask, what is holiness? What does that word actually mean? What does it mean for something to be holy? The word holy simply means to set something apart for a specific purpose. That's what holiness, that's what holy means, to set something apart for a specific purpose. Notice, rule keeping is not the definition of holy. Notice, perfection is not the definition of holy. It is literally to separate something for a specifically designed purpose. That's what holiness means. It's not perfection. When you look at the law, especially in the end of Exodus, God is giving instructions on how to build the tabernacle where they're going to worship him. And almost every item that he gives descriptions of, he calls that thing holy. This altar that you're designing for worship is going to be holy. This candlestick that's going to be in the, in the tabernacle is going to be holy. Now, what is a holy candlestick? Has it not sinned? Oh, that's, it, that's impossible, isn't it? So you see how we put this definition on a word that never was intended to be there? Like, how, what is an altar? Is an altar sinless? It's a piece of wood or metal. It's not holy in the way that we think of perfection, right? In the way of moral perfection. So it's being set apart for a specific purpose. Here's what that means. Holiness is not perfect practice. Holiness is practice makes perfect. There's a difference there. Holiness is not perfect practice. I get everything right every time, all the time. Now I'm holy. Instead, holiness is practice makes perfect. Holiness is not a destination. It is the journey. Holiness is not perfection. It is a process. Now there's an objection some might have to that description when we talk about the Old Testament law in that way, and the objection is, well, Stephen, you can't do that. That's a New Testament idea that you're forcing on the Old Testament. You can't go back and superimpose what you now know that they didn't know. And I'll say fair enough, that idea is in the New Testament. Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul writes this. He writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There it is. Work it out. It's not the destination. It is the journey. Work it out. Figure it out. Practice it. This salvation, this holiness. Figure it out. Work it out. Walk it out. It's a process. It's a journey, not a destination. That is the New Testament. However, it's also in the Old Testament law. Let me show you. Leviticus 20, verse 8. God says this, Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. Again, holiness is not a destination. It is the journey. Put it into practice. Do it daily. Do it regularly. Figure it out. Work it out. Holiness is not perfection, but it's a process. 
So it's a journey and a process. This journey and this process of holiness is another word that we call sanctification. Sanctification. Again, the Latin for this word is to be made holy. To be made, which would mean a process is involved here. Sanctification is the process of holiness. We work it out. We walk it out. We think it out. We figure it out as we go. It's like being in a laboratory with an experiment. So our lives are a laboratory of holiness. Every day is a new experiment in this process of holiness. It's the next step in this journey that is holiness. We figure it out, work it out, try it out, and sometimes the experiment fails. Sometimes it explodes, you know. There's just a plume of smoke over that day because that holiness journey, I didn't get very far. I didn't, didn't quite get it figured out. So guess what? Tomorrow, new experiment, new opportunity, new step in this journey of, not toward holiness, the journey of holiness. So, Even when the experiment fails, we are still holy. Okay? You might say, well, how is that possible? Here's how. Another description of holiness. Holiness is not a demand, but it is a description. Remember, the definition of holiness is not perfect in all of everything that you do, every decision that you make. You get it, nail it every time, right? It is a process. It is a journey. And the the definition, again, is to be set apart. That is a description of something, okay? So if you identify with God and allow his law to be the laboratory of your life, God calls you holy. You are classified as holy by him, not for what you've done, but for what he intends you to do. He's setting you apart for his specific purpose, despite what you do with that. So we don't pursue the law to be holy. We pursue the law because we are holy, okay? Again, it's not a destination I'm trying to arrive to. I never get it right, and I always fail. It is a description that God has already said about you if you belong to him. I have called you holy. I have set you apart to be my people for my specific purpose. It is not about perfection or a destination. It is a process and a journey. So I think that's a, hopefully that maybe, maybe it's a lot to take in today. Maybe you've never thought about it in that, in those terms. So maybe this week, just think about that. Meditate on that, pray about that, say, okay, God, what does that mean? What, what exactly has, was he saying there? Because I don't, so maybe it's blowing your mind. Maybe you're like, ho-hum, Stephen, let's move on, let's get out of here. we got a game at 2 o'clock. I don't know. You're somewhere in between those two options. But either way, I want us to understand what holiness really is. It is not impossible. It is a journey that we're all on each and every day. Then there's the third aspect of the law we're going to look at here for a few minutes, and that is the person of the law. This is really what makes the law possible, is the person of the law. There's actually two people of the law, so it's really persons of the law, but uh, we're going to look at them one by one, and we're going to revisit two verses we've already looked at. Okay, we're going to revisit two verses and look at them from this lens of the person of the law. First, Leviticus 20, verse 8, again, God's saying here, Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. See, we're connecting what we just talked about. Holiness is a classification that God puts on you. He calls you this thing. He doesn't say, try to attain this. He says, you are this. In your current imperfect state, you are holy. It's a a description, not a demand. 
So obedience to the rules, right? That's not what God says here is obeying my rules makes you holy. It's not what he says. He says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's a classification from God. He makes you holy. He calls you holy. He declares you holy. Then again, Leviticus 19, we already looked at this as well, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I want us to flip the order of that second half of the verse and see if it changes how we view holiness again. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let's flip it. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy, you shall be holy. Does that sound any different at all? So let's look at this, though. We already asked what holiness is. So what makes God, God says he's holy. Well, what makes God holy? Is God holy because he is morally perfect? I mean, maybe partially. But really, in reality, everything about God makes him holy. Again, holy is set apart. God is transcendent in every way imaginable. Therefore, by definition, by his own mere existence, he is holy. He is set apart from everything and everyone that ever has and ever will exist. God himself is holy. He is transcendent. There is no one and nothing like him. It's not his sinlessness or his moral perfection alone that make him holy. His existence makes him holy. So what that means, here's why that's important. Only A holy being can then declare something or someone else to be holy. So God says that because I am holy, I can and am calling you holy. So it's not about your sinlessness or perfection that make you holy. You can't earn or achieve holiness. It is a description of God's people that only he can give them. Let me give you one example that maybe will help flesh this out a little bit. Similar language here. I've used this example before, but hopefully you've forgotten all about this, right? There's this example of a professor coming into his classroom on the first day of class, and he says, you shall get an A, for I am the professor. Now, at first blush, that sounds almost like a threat. Like, I've got my quota to keep. I only give A's in this classroom, so you better earn your A, because I'm the professor. But again, let's flip that around and look at it really, I think, how it's intended. Because I am the professor, you shall get an A. So now it's not a demand from the professor. It's like a promise from the professor. I am that good of a professor, you will get an A. I am that that forgiving. No matter how many times you mess up, you can take the test again and you will get an A because I am the professor. You know, you might might not understand everything, but you're going to get an A because I am the professor. It's the same thing with God. Because I am holy, you will shall be holy. Only a holy God can give that distinction, and he does through his limitless grace and through his own holiness. There's a second person of the law here that is interwoven throughout not just the Old Testament law, but throughout the entire Old Testament, and that is Jesus Christ. He is in there. Here's what Jesus says about the law. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes or to fulfill them. This is an important distinction to make about Jesus. He did not come to get rid of the law, abolish the law, or replace the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. 
And the reason he has to say this is because some of the things that he says and does seem to go against the law. There's even times where he says, you've heard it said or you've seen it, you've seen it read, don't do this, but I tell you to do this other thing. So it seems like, whoa, 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 no, you are replacing the law. Clearly, you're saying, don't do this, do this. But that's not what he's doing at all. He is fulfilling the law. Here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to explain in the simplest way possible what the law really was. And Jesus came to show completely and perfectly what the law really was. So let's look at this again. He came to explain in the simplest terms possible what the law was. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says this. He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. Moving on down in Matthew 22, he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This second quote is from Leviticus 19, verse 18. He is quoting the law to get to the heart of the law. Not to say that I'm bringing something new and different and revolutionary. He says, no, I've come to explain, to get it right down to the core, the essence of all these 600 and now thousands of laws that we have. It comes down to these two things, love God and love others, which is a summation of the law. It perfectly sums it up. And also what he does here, when you look at the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them, right? The first four are about loving God, how we honor God, how we treat God, how we live in accordance to God. The last six are about how we love one another. So Jesus says, hey, even the top ten break down this same way. All the 600 laws break down the same way. It's about loving God and loving others. And in Matthew 5 that we just read, it's, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a basically it's like Deuteronomy 2.0. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus retelling the law in his own sort of flair, his own terms. And he does the exact same thing. You look at the beginning of Matthew 5, it's called the Beatitudes. That is how we love God. That is a us and God is the Beatitudes, okay? Blessed are the blank, for, they, for God will do this for them, over and over and over. Then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is how we love one another. He's doing the same thing that God did at the beginning and that Moses did in Deuteronomy, explaining the law in the simplest terms possible, in ways that can relate to the people of the day. What he says is we love God by loving others, and we love God as we love others. And that comes to an interesting point about the law is what good is the law if you're on an island? The purpose of the law is not just about doing the right thing so God will love me or accept me, right? That's not the point. It's, it's about how I honor him by loving others. If I'm on an island by myself, the law is not really necessary to me. The law helps us, again, to interact as a community. It's an identity for the collective group to honor God by loving other people, to have flourishing in our lives and our communities. So Jesus explained the law in the simplest terms possible, but then most importantly, how it applies to us today is he completely and perfectly shows the law in action. One more verse before we, as we close, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul is showing us that Jesus fulfilled the law he kept it perfectly, and he fulfilled every part of it. 2 Corinthians 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's break this down for just a minute here. So, God made him who had no sin. So we talked about the impossibility of the law. Jesus accomplished that impossibility of the law. He did keep the law. Even though we're talking about that's not really the point, Jesus still did it anyway. Why is that important? It's important because just as we said only a holy God can call someone else holy, only a completely righteous being can then declare someone else to be righteous. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul says here. We become the righteousness of God in Christ because of Christ. Now, I can't do that for you. I can't declare you righteous because I am unrighteous, right? I have sinned. I have fallen short of God's glory. So I can't give that description. But Jesus, because he was sinless, because he was righteous, now he can declare you and I righteous. Only a sinless spotless person could do that. So that's why that's important. Then it says he became sin. He caused him to be sin. This is Isaiah chapter 53. It says that he took upon him the sins of the world. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement. Atonement means that the, God, that the gods are appeased by a sacrifice, but then it's substitutionary. God, God's wrath is stayed for, for not just only any sacrifice, but for Christ filling in for each of us as the sacrifice. So all the sacrifices in Leviticus are always pointing to the ultimate once and for all sacrifice in Jesus. It seems like, why are there so many things here? Why are there so many commands? Jesus fulfilled them all in himself perfectly. He became sin for us forever. And then it's an important thing here. It says, in him we become the righteousness of God. In him we become that. That comes back to identity. We talked about at the beginning, one of the purposes of the law is to give Israel their identity. They found that in the law. Now we find our identity in Christ. So that explains, again, what I could spend weeks on. Why don't we, why don't we as Christians, why don't we obey all like the dietary laws? Why don't we do that? It's this idea of identity. Our identity is no longer in the law. It is in Christ who fulfilled the law. And so that's, that's where that goes away. I don't have to have these dietary restrictions to mark me as a follower of, or as a person of God. Now I put faith in his son, and I have that same mark on my life. I'm one of his people through faith in his son. He fulfilled the law. He embodied the law. So our identity is now in him instead of in the law. So... I'll leave that alone because I could go on there for a while, but we'll, we'll close with this idea. The last part of this verse is he says, we become the righteousness of God. That's the same thing as Leviticus 19. You be holy for I am holy. It's the same idea, okay? Holiness is a description. Only a holy God can call you holy. Righteousness is a description. Only the righteous son of God can declare us righteous, and he does. We're declared right with God through faith in Christ. That's what the, the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians is all about, okay? We look to faith in Christ, not obedience to the law, to make us God's people now. That's the distinguishing factor. You see how this is all kind of fitting together here? I hope that you're seeing how this sort of goes from one thing to another and bleeds into this other idea. 
uh, with the law, a new understanding and maybe appreciation for the law. Now, it's still going to be hard to read. I get that. Maybe with this understanding, though, it makes it a little bit easier to read. And I would encourage you, when you get into Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, have some sort of resource to read alongside that to help you get through that, maybe to point out certain things in certain spots that will help you say, oh, okay, I see that, or, oh, I appreciate that more now that I actually understand what's going on here. So I would still encourage you to do that, but hopefully today in seeing this idea of what holiness is and what it's not, what righteousness is and what it's not, what the law is and what it's not will help us to maybe appreciate and understand the law even more. We have purpose in the law that has been made possible through the person of Jesus. That's the whole point of this whole discussion today is that we have purpose in the law that is made possible through the person and the work of Jesus. And that is good news.